0: This is Brendan O'Shea. Welcome to this exclusive interview from my archives. For a deeper dive into my interviews and features, please explore tall-poppies.com. That's tall-poppies.com. I appreciate your interest and hope you enjoy the content. Today we meet the writer Alain de Botton.
1: Flick through an interior design magazine, look at the styles. What these styles are telling you about is what's missing from our society, which is, on the one hand, peace, calm, um, a chance to get away from the bustle of our incredibly complicated lives, and on the other hand, contact with nature, with history, uh, with the earth. Born
0: in 1969, writer Alain Ponton moved to England with his family from Switzerland when he was eight years old. He was educated at Cambridge University, where he read history. De is a frequent contributor to numerous newspapers, journals and magazines and is a member of the Arts Council of England's Literature Panel. He's published three novels, including the titles Essay in Love and Kiss and Tell and he's the author of a number of works of non-fiction. These include the titles The Consolations of Philosophy and The Art of Trouble. Well, Alain de Botton's latest book is a further work of non-fiction called The Architecture of Happiness. In this book, he discusses beauty and ugliness in architecture.
1: Architecture is perplexing in how inconsistent it is at making us happy. While an attractive building may on occasion flatter an ascending mood, there will be times when the most congenial of locations will be unable to dislodge our sadness or misanthropy. We can feel anxious and envious even though the floor we're standing on has been imported from a remote quarry and finely sculpted window frames have been painted a soothing grey. Our inner metronome can be unimpressed by the efforts of workmen to create a fountain or nurture a symmetrical line of oak trees. We can fall into a petty argument which ends in threats of divorce in a building by Geoffrey Bauer or Louis Kahn. Houses can invite us to join them in a mood which we find ourselves incapable of summoning. The noblest architecture can sometimes do less for us than a siesta or an aspirin.
0: Author Alain de Botton reading there from The Architecture of Happiness. Indeed, one of the great but often unmentioned causes of both happiness and misery, for many of us, is the quality of our environment. More specifically, the kind of walls, chairs, buildings and streets we're surrounded by. Hence, when I spoke to Alain de Botton, I asked him firstly how he became so intrigued in architecture, so much so that he wrote a book about it.
1: I think what's always interested me is, uh, in a very broad sense, the causes of happiness and unhappiness. That's sort of my big theme. And I've written different books on uh, different uh, uh, topics, including travel and love, uh, philosophy, literature. But animating most of these books is a concern for a very big and basic question, which is how can we lead a good life? You know, This was the question that uh, the ancient Greek philosophers began with, and it's still an important question today. If you raise that question, sooner or later, you're going to bump up against architecture because the quality of the places we live in has a huge impact on how we feel. The quality of our, our streets, our cities, our homes, uh, these things play a vital role. And uh, it's really partly because I think that the modern world is in many ways an incredibly ugly place that I was inspired to try and work out what is a beautiful place as a way of kind of sparking debate and trying, in a way, to get the world to look a little bit nicer. So if I can have a minute impact on at least a few people and getting them to think more about where they live and how they live, then that's great.
0: I'm wondering, of course, about uh, how they live and, and where they live, but also people's moods can be affected by where they live. Tell us about some of the examples you've come across along the way and how people's, people's behavior
1: is actually affected by their surroundings. Well, take cities. Cities are incredibly compli- complex places. By their very definition, you're having a lot of people in one place doing a lot of things uh, at different times of day. And so there's a great tendency in all cities towards chaos. Now, the most beautiful cities are able to modulate that chaos and somehow create order out of chaos and have a tension between the complexity of the activities going on and a kind of architectural sense of rhythm and balance and and, as I say, order. Uh, So if you look at a city like uh, the centre of Paris, the centre of Amsterdam, the centre of Manhattan, um, what you get there is, uh, at their best, these cities uh, give you a feeling that you're in the middle of humanity, but the middle of humanity is a pleasant place to be. Uh, you You can cope with the crowds because the architecture is very regular and is kind of delightful to the eye. Well, of course, you've mentioned a number of major cities there. Of course, Paris has never
0: been bombed. But what about a city like Cologne? Here we are in Cologne, one of the cities that suffered the most in the Second World War. And the scars of something dreadful from the 20th century uh, can be found around you and and actually has made it in many ways a very ugly place. Are there ways of perhaps seeing that within the behaviour of people or, or the
1: city and how it's been rebuilt? Well I think cologne doesn 't help one 's mood um, I mean uh, you 're not always affected by architecture you know let 's imagine that you 've just fallen in love or won the lottery or something if you 're living in a not particularly beautiful place it doesn 't really uh, matter. Um, similarly, you know if something absolutely tragic has happened to you, someone you love has died, uh, being in venice or or Paris is not going to help either. Um, but most of the time we 're in a way between these two extremes, neither very happy nor very sad, but somehow hovering between these possibilities. And at that moment, it is very often things like the quality of the architecture that will decide which way our mood goes. And uh, I must say that Cologne is not going to help anyone. Um, It's not going to push anyone in in the right direction. So I think anyone who lives in Cologne always has to make that bit more of an effort uh, to find kind of reasons to be cheerful and hopeful. The architecture does nothing uh, to raise the spirit. There are particular buildings, and we can talk about a few of those. Let's stay with Cologne, though. And, of
0: course, you think of Cologne, you think of the Cologne Cathedral there in the centre. It seems to also radiate a certain sort of energy and positive vibe at the same time. This amazing, probably one of the most amazing in Europe, well, it is one of the most amazing in Europe, Gothic cathedrals. Do these
1: buildings also have a certain effect on the city and where they are? Sure. I mean, in a way, you, you only have to look to religious architecture to understand um, the power of architecture. Uh, religious architects understood uh, first and perhaps better than anyone uh, since uh, the impact of, let's say, a very high ceiling or very walls that look like they're held very lightly by slender columns. Uh, all of these things, uh, the architects of the Middle Ages spent an awful lot of time thinking about, knowing that the capacity of the, uh, their audiences who believe certain things, would be directly impacted on by the quality of the architecture. So that in one kind of space, you might lose your faith. You might not be a Christian if you were just in a farmhouse. But, you know, come to Cologne Cathedral and you will be reminded that, yes, you know, God is great or whatever it happens to be. So religious architecture is founded on the idea that where you are vitally impacts on who you are and what you can believe
0: I noticed that one of my favourite sentences that that stays in my mind is that you said buildings are are like choirs rather than soloists, in other words, fitting in with others. Have I understood that correctly?
1: Yes. I mean, I I think that if you look at a building, it's made up of many different parts. And a good building, in a good building, the parts somehow cohere. Um, The windows are the right proportion, the doors uh, match the walls in in, in certain ways. And similarly, a bad building, what what we mean by ugliness, is frequently uh, a structure where everything is kind of uh, speaking or singing, if you like, in a a different pitch, at a different pitch. So the doors don't match the windows, the height of the ceiling doesn't match the quality of the the furnishings or, or whatever it happens to be. So yes, a good building pulls, you could say, in the same direction, and it's saying something coherent okay let 's talk about some of these these good buildings and these new buildings that 's the later
0: creations, for example, one that stays in my mind is has to be the Sydney Opera House, mm. or more recently berlin 's new train station, which mm. was also uh,
1: the mm. Uh, subject of a a great deal of controversy. Mm. I think it's interesting because these buildings, both of these buildings, uh, to some extent are bound up with national identity, with trying to answer the question, what is Australia? Uh, What is modern Germany? And I think a successful building of that kind of scale, a very large building, uh, frequently has on its shoulders the need to answer uh, people's desire to... Uh, kind of situate themselves uh, vis-a-vis their history and their country. And the best thing really that the Sydney Opera House does is to present the people of Australia with a kind of image of what their country might be like. Uh, Now I know Australia quite well and I know that a lot of it is not like the Sydney Opera House at all, uh, it frequently doesn't have its lightness, its airiness, its modernity, its hope. Uh, all of these things. But but what that uh, building does is to provide a kind of icon, a kind of reminder of what Australia could be at its best moments. So it, it's it's a source of inspiration, and I think that is what these uh, great civic buildings should be doing: the, the Parliament buildings, the museums, the opera houses. That for me is is their role. They should be, uh, as it were, inspiring people and saying, you know, this is uh, this is what our country could be it might not always be but this is what it could be those two buildings have something else in common and
0: that is of course a a great deal of controversy with the architects who built them there's a lawsuit going on in berlin and the great tragic story is of course that the architect from australia actually never saw the complete building because common sense supposedly or government funds came in and cut short their visions and their ideas how
1: sacred is an architect's plan, and do you think that it should be followed through to the end? Well, I mean, architecture is this perplexing mixture of the artistic and the practical, and uh, it's unfortunate that many of the greatest architects uh, have not had a secure grasp on uh, the basics of finance, and of the construction industry. Their training has geared them towards making th- objects of beauty, but has not necessarily equipped them to deal with bureaucracy and as I say, uh, fi- finance and the politics of construction. So frequently they've, they've, as it were, come unstuck. You know, They've designed something beautiful, but have been unable to prepare their clients, to negotiate with their clients, and uh, there's been terrible fallings out. I can see it from both sides. Uh, I think anyone who's even had the builders in for a, a short time to redo their kitchen or, or whatever or dealt with an architect to extend their patio uh, will know that architects uh, frequently uh, are unable to master costs and uh, and and to deal with the practical side of life and um, the ideal is is to have a building that can you know manage to do the two the architecture of happiness for
0: those of us who live in fairly limited circumstances in one way or another. In other words, within an apartment, within a within a house.
1: What do you think are the key elements that, that make good living? I think um, one principle of, of good living is that what you find beautiful, to some extent, reflects what you don't necessarily have enough of in your own life. Um, I think what we look for from our architecture is to kind of rebalance us. So... Uh, let's imagine your life is particularly hard, tough. You, you, you have a job that is demanding and, in a way, cruel. Um, you may be attracted in your tastes, in your architectural design tastes, towards a very kind of cozy, intimate uh, uh, kind of architecture. So uh, the way I like to look at it is that, that, you know, flick through an interior design magazine, look at the styles. What these styles are telling you about is what's missing from our society. I was just looking at a magazine the other day, and I was struck by how uh, the kitchen's on offer in this interior design magazine, were basically of two kinds. On the one hand, they were these minimalist kitchens, all very stark and empty and calm. And on the other hand, they were these very sort of natural, pine, uh, old-fashioned kitchens. And I think both of them reflected, in a way, what's missing in our societies, which is, on the one hand, peace calm, um, a chance to get away from the bustle of our incredibly complicated lives and on the other hand, contact with nature with history, uh, with the earth. Uh, So in as modest a construction as a kitchen, uh, you will find people being drawn to things that they don't have enough of in their life and when we talk of someone feeling at home in a place, uh, really what we mean to say is this is a place which answers to one's deepest needs, not just practical needs but one's deepest kind of emotional needs.
0: This is Brendan O'Shea. For a deeper dive into my interviews and features, please explore tall-poppies.com. That's tall-poppies.com. I appreciate your interest and hope you enjoy the content.